how would you answer the question, what kind of God do you serve? And more specifically, and maybe another way to look at this, if people were judging by your level of commitment, your actions, your behavior, what kind of God would they assume you served? For some, God is an only when I need him God. Others are what one of my instructors termed CME Christians. When I heard that term, I thought, CME, charismatic, missionary, evangelical, maybe, I wasn't really sure. And he said, no, Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. And that's the kind of God some people serve. If there's a special occasion, some special reason to come together on Sunday, then that's the kind of God they serve. Some serve a Sunday-only God. In fact, many professed Christians serve a Sunday-only God. And what that means is he is the emphasis, perhaps, of that day, but the rest of the week. There's really no indication that he's important in their life or inclination to make him important in their life. I love Psalm 145 for a number of reasons, but one in particular this morning. I don't know if you noticed this when it was read for us just a moment ago, but David, as the one to whom this psalm is attributed, says that God is an everyday God. An everyday God. Listen to the verses again. I will extol you. That's a fancy word that just means that I will praise you enthusiastically. Now, we try to do that in worship, but what about every day of our lives? David says of God, I will praise you enthusiastically, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever. We get a little confused about this word bless. Sometimes when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we'll ask God to bless this bread as though maybe in the minds of some who are unfamiliar with what we're doing, we're giving thanks for the bread, but they might expect that we're asking God to do something to that bread, which is not the case The idea of blessed just means to give thanks in that context. But there's another meaning and more of a meaning here. This idea of blessing something means favoring it. And if you'll follow that word through your Bible, you'll see that it goes back and forth. God's blessing sometimes. People are blessing God. How how do people bless God? Well, it simply means that they favor God. God has a favored place in their lives. 
And so what David is saying is, I will praise you enthusiastically, my God, my King, and I will favor your name forever and ever. Every day I will favor you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. And so the psalmist, David, here, knew God to be an everyday God. But why? Why does David see God that way? And can that help you and me become more than CME Christians, become more than occasional Christians, become more than Sunday-only Christians? Can it help us to be the kind of people who praise God enthusiastically every day, who favor God every day? What can David tell us about God that will help us? Today, and having the benefit of preaching both sermons, today I can stretch this out because it's just too much for one sermon. And so this morning... And tonight, and so if you're if you're Sunday morning only Christian, you're not going to get the rest of this. And you're going to be left in a miserable place because you'll only have half of the formula. And so maybe I can persuade you to come back tonight and get the rest of this, not from me, but from David inspired by God to tell us what can make God an everyday God for us. Here's the first one. It's found in verses 3 through 6. The first reason that David gives as to why God is an everyday God, God is an everyday God because of his greatness. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You know, sometimes preachers struggle for words to use for a point in a sermon. That's just not, it wasn't that hard here. Because three times in this one verse, the greatness of God is emphasized. Great, great, great. And so David acknowledges the greatness of God, but it's still perplexing. He says, how unsearchable is his greatness. What that means is when you, when you think or when I think I have dove, dove, I have dove into the depths. I can't even figure out what word's supposed to go there. Dive, dove, dove. When I've made it to the depths of what I think I know about God's greatness, I am left with this conclusion. It's unsearchable. It is so vast. It is so amazing. And I just am left digging and digging deeper to try to find a satisfying place to be appreciative of God's greatness. And I can't. My family was not, growing up, we, we did some vacations, but we, we were not the type of family that visited the places in our, uh, the United States even, that just showed the awe and the majesty of the world that we live in, like the Grand Canyon. I've never been there. 
I've never been to really any of these places that just leave you standing in awe. But while I was in preaching school, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Canada, and I got to see Niagara Falls from the Canadian side. And at that place, you can get right up next to the edge of Niagara Falls and just watch and hear and really feel the rushing of that water over that fall. And it you're just left in awe at the amazement of that. And yet, that, what you feel at the Grand Canyon, what you could feel if you were able to go to the moon and look back at the earth, as some have had the opportunity to do, would still leave you questioning just how great God is because, as David says, his greatness is unsearchable. In other words, throughout my day, every day, as I praise God enthusiastically and as he has a favored place in my mind and in my life, one thing that keeps him there is that I am not able to exhaust his unsearchable greatness. Notice verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. At least that's the way it ought to be because when I have this kind of God, an everyday God, I am left with nothing else to do but to praise him to subsequent generations. It's the natural order of things. When God has that place in our lives, we can't help it. But you might remember the familiar scene of Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, where the Bible speaks of that generation that had come to know the power and might of God through the conquering and the conquest of the promised land. These sad and sobering words. Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. The state of our world today, the mess that it is in, the godless behavior that is engaged in left and right is a direct result, one, of people not telling subsequent generations about God. And why did they not do that? Because they quit telling themselves about his unsearchable greatness. We fail the generations that come after us because we fail ourselves when we lose sight of the fact that our God is an everyday God and he deserves that. Notice verse 5. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Meditate. I like stereograms. I don't know if you associate that word with, with the image, but it, it's the picture of all these different 
uh, patterns, and then you're supposed to stare at it until this three-dimensional image pops out that's not visible otherwise. And the only way to see that image, unless you're very talented, is to just stare. And I have done that as a child till I felt like I was going to be stuck cross-eyed looking at those stereograms. But when you see it, it just pops out, and it's like a three-dimensional image right there before your eyes. It wasn't there, but it is. That's a great way to think about the word or the idea of meditating. To just stare at and ingest and soak up the word of God until the application of it for your life becomes apparent. You might say meditation is the medication for application. Because it is. Because God's word is not going to fix anything broken in your life until you spend enough time with it to get the sense of what it says about how to fix your broken life. And so meditate on the greatness of God. And then verse 6, Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. You know, sometimes people talk about the great things of God, but they don't know half of what you know as a child of God. And so what they offer is a primer to greater expounding of the greatness of God. That's true, but did you know? I read in the Bible, I I don't know much about it, but I read about the God destroying the world with a flood. Yeah, but did you know he also enacted a plan to save the world with his son? See, people talk about the might of God's awesome acts, but we need to declare his greatness to them. But we won't communicate what we have not acknowledged in our own lives. We just won't. And so the first thing I need from David, I get it very clearly about how to make God an everyday God in my life. I need to think about his greatness. You might remember Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the things that you've heard among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. We have to pass it on. What? The greatness of God. Number two, when we get to verses seven through nine, we get another characteristic or quality of God that helps us keep him in his proper place as an everyday God. And it is the goodness of God. I'm not going to sing the song because I'll probably mess it up, but... In fact, it's a prayer, right, that's often taught to little little children. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I think it goes something like that. It's been a few minutes since I said that. But look at that. The first two qualities that that little prayer teaches children are the two that David says, Help us to keep God in his proper place in everyday God. And so the goodness of God. 
You know, we've seen his greatness. We've talked about his might some. But a God with might and power does not guarantee that man will benefit. I mean, just think of some of the gods that are served in the pagan world. And the qualities and the characteristics of that God. So, some see God as a God of wrath. Not a God of goodness, but a God of wrath just waiting to punish and strike people. Some see God as a tester. That God puts stumbling blocks and hazards in our way to trip us up so that he can sit back on his heavenly throne and just laugh at humanity for their senselessness. That's the God some people serve. Or what about retribution? You do something wrong, you make a mistake, God's standing on the edge of heaven waiting to strike you down. Retribution. And then some see him as a flawed God subject to moral blemish. You know, really, he's up there with all of this power, but he's no different than us. He has moral blemishes. God has a moral compass that he often violates, they think. And so God could be great. He could have might and power, but that in and of itself doesn't mean that man's going to benefit from it. But that's not the God of the psalmist, and it's certainly not the God of the Bible. Look at verses 7 and 8. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness, not moral depravity, not moral fault, but righteousness. In verse 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. That's the God David saw. And he understood and he appreciated this God as one of goodness. And so that made it easy for David to say, I will extol you forever and ever. I will favor you every day because of your goodness. And then look at verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. All. Don't miss that word, all. Because the Bible God is for all humanity. Everyone, not just a select few, not just those he likes. He's for all. Peter got at that in Peter chapter, in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, where he said, Of a truth I perceive that God shows no partialities, no respect for persons, but in every nation he who fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. No partiality with God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul is as admonishing Timothy to pray for rulers and those who are in power that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. He says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, the goodness of God is extended to all. 
There are some parents who favor certain children in their families and they're good to those children and they're not good to others. But that's not our Father God. You can hate Him. You can be a CME Christian. You can be a Sunday-only Christian. You can be no Christian and God still loves you. And he's still going to be good to you because it's in his nature to be. He doesn't favor anyone when it comes to those to whom he extends his love, his mercy, his compassion, and his forgiveness. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In Christ Jesus, we're all one. And if we're in Christ, we're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, if we are in Christ. The truth of God's great goodness is not just relevant to Bible times, it's relevant to our day. Our world is in a mess. People hating people, and yet we have a God who's good to all and who wants the best for all and has gone to great lengths to give people the opportunity to come to him on his terms. Let's not forget that. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, people look at God and they say, Well, uh, he wound this universe up and he just forgot about it. And he's selfish, he's conceited, he doesn't care about humanity. Look, he just left it. And he left it in a minute. No. <laughs> what you're missing is the goodness of God. His long-suffering nature, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. You see, when David looked at reasons to serve God every day, to extol him, to favor him in his life, he saw the greatness of God and he saw the goodness of God. Number three, in verse 10, David saw the praiseworthiness of God. He says, all your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your, your saints shall bless you. All your works shall praise you. All your saints shall bless you. The praiseworthiness of God. You know, humanity, whether we do it or not, has every reason to praise God. Every reason. But we rarely do. Just generally speaking about humanity, we rarely do. You obviously chose to be here today and for good reason because you recognize that God is worthy to be praised. But not everybody does that and maybe that's not a daily sentiment for me or for you. It should be and I hope that we move to a place of motivation to change that today. But the reality is most people don't even 
care about the praiseworthiness of God. They don't get it. And I can only imagine that that perplexes God. You know, if you, if you look at the creative order of the world in which we live and you look at the advancement and development and design in each created thing, you see that humanity is at the pinnacle of God's great creative work. And he's given us every quality we need, every characteristic, every ability we need to look up and recognize him and say, you are worthy of praise. But there's a colloquial expression used often. You probably used it yourself about people being dumber than rocks. You know, someone might say, he's as dumb as a rock. What, what, is that, what does that even mean? I have a good idea. If you want to hold your place right there just a minute and look at Luke 19. Luke 19, I want you to read verses 37 through 40 with me. Luke 19, 37 through 40. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, talking about Jesus, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones, the rocks, would immediately cry out. Jesus presents a situation that if God is not given appropriate praise and acknowledgement by humanity, surely the stones would cry out. Because how could that be missed? And how can it be missed by us at the pinnacle of God's creation? And so I'm sure, I, I, I can't say I'm sure, I expect that it perplexes God. That humanity doesn't take the opportunity to praise him and it only demonstrates that sometimes we're dumber than rocks. Have you ever noticed what the Bible says about dumb, inanimate things praising God? We don't get it, but in some sense, things that can't speak, things that can't think, they get it. I Just listen. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line, that is their measuring rod, has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Who? The heavenly bodies. Or what about Psalm 98, verses 7 and 8? Let the sea roar in all its fullness. 
the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Or one, Psalm 148, verses 7 through 10. Praise the Lord from the earth, the great sea creatures and all the debts. Fire and hell, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. All of these dumb things praise God. Even the rocks. And Isaiah 44 and verse 23 says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. And what's different today? Nothing. Because Jesus Christ, his son, has redeemed us. Shouldn't we all much more praise God than the dumb, thoughtless, unintelligent things in the world that God has created? This verse says, your saints shall favor you. God's people, his saints, do from the heart what nature does naturally. And that is praise God. Psalm 18 and verse 3 says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And so the praiseworthiness of God. We began with a question about the kind of God we serve. The hope my prayerful hope is that we're moved to conviction that he is an everyday God. Ten verses into this 21-verse psalm, and what motivation is there? Plenty. God's greatness, his goodness, his praiseworthiness. Tonight, if the Lord wills, as if that were not enough already, We'll continue our study of this psalm and notice his glorious kingdom, his completeness, and his nearness. I hope you'll come back and be a part of that study and our worship to our great everyday God tonight. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, might you be encouraged to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ to become a Christian, a child of God, through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism for the remission of your sins, the Lord will add you to his family, the church. Maybe you're here this morning as a Christian. Maybe, maybe you're not an everyday God. Our God is not an everyday God in your life. Might you be encouraged to rethink that, to meditate on your need, to change it, to be the kind of Christian that serves God every day? We can help you publicly through prayer and encouragement. We certainly stand ready to do that. If you have any need that we can help you with, why don't you come as we stand and sing? Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you'd like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262. 
or you can visit our website at RoanoakeChurchOfChrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.